Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the Print Design Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks for being here. Thanks for checking it out today. And you'll be glad you did, you know what I mean? You, you might not know what I mean yet, but you will know what I mean once I get to that. Anyways, um, look, this podcast is all about graphic design for print, and we do a deep dive into print projects that designers have created and been a part of. We talk about why and how and what and all of those kind of questions to give you sort of a fly on the wall, behind the scenes look at, to, at what's involved in coming up with an idea and creating a print project, working with printers, proofing, press checking, all that sort of thing. So before I introduce today's guest, if you are not doing print design, you need to be because it's amazing. Creating something that goes on your screen, you design it, you make it look real pretty there, and then bringing it into the real tangible world with a really nice paper or maybe an emboss or a foil or something awesome like that. That's incredible. Holding that in your hand and eventually over a career of print design, building a shelf full of amazing print projects that you have been a part of, you have designed. So if you aren't doing print design right now and you want to get started with that, go to printdesignacademy.com and sign up for the free three-part video series, totally free, and it just gives you all the info you need to just get started. Start having those conversations and they give you the information you need to start interacting with printers, start asking questions, finding a printer, those sort of things. Printdesignacademy.com, get started with it. So before I introduce today's guest, I need to ask you, um, have you ever made a book into a planetarium or maybe a book into a working camera, like an actual camera that you can take pictures of, like with, made out of paper? Have you ever done that? Well, don't you worry if you haven't because today's guest has, and I'm pretty sure she's the only one. My guest today is none other than Kelly Anderson. She is an extremely talented graphic designer. She has done some incredible things with paper in print, the tangible things. So I don't want to give any of this away because I want you to hear it fresh because it's so incredible. Last one I'll mention, okay? She created a wedding invitation out of paper, of course, that had a record in it, is a working record player, a wedding invitation as a working record player. What the heck? How do you even think of that? How do you even think that? Anyways, I'll let her tell the story. So ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. My guest, Kelly Anderson. Here we go. Welcome to the Print Design Podcast. The show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rocked their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So, let's talk ink on paper. Kelly, what's cooking? Thanks for joining me on the Print Design Podcast. How are you? Hey, good. I'm, I'm cooking. It's summer in New York. It's hot. 
Yeah, no kidding. I have heard rumors. Like the last time I was in New York was in the spring, like late May, early June. And it was just like, it was perfect. It was warm, but not to the point where you're like drenched in your own body sweat taking the subway. Yeah, it's it's that state right now. I think it's like 95 outside right now. So Jeez. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's warm. That's for sure. That's East Coast warm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everyone in New Mexico and Texas is like, whatever, it's over 100 <laughs> today, but they don't walk and bike to where they're going, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They hop in the trucks and turn on the AC. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I want to kick this off by just having you, you know, tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I am a graphic designer, and I try to push print to sort of an insane extreme. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out the limitations of what paper can do. And so um, some of my past projects have included, I worked on a paper record player wedding invitation uh, for my friends, Karen and Mike, a while ago. And because of that project, I ended up creating um, a book called This Book is a Camera. That is a piece of paper that's elaborately folded into a functional pinhole camera. Um, also have a book called This Book is a Planetarium. I'm sort of like the master of titling books, literally. Um, there's, a little, <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> there's a little planetarium in it. But um, yeah, I love uh, sort of lo-fi interactive things. Um, I like the magic that physical things have. And um, I've also been doing like a lot of uh, use and misuse and abuse of the risograph lately. I've been creating a bunch of risograph animations. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I've been been doing lately. That's awesome. So you are like more than knee deep into print. You're passionate about print. I want to now kick this back further. What is the earliest memory of print or packaging that you have? Maybe it's something from your childhood, from your teens. Oh, wow. My earliest memory. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I, I have a fondness from childhood uh, of those child craft encyclopedia sets, like the one that was like rainbow colored. That was oh, cool. That was something I really, I really, really liked. And, and like the golden books, like I remember those and the illustrations and those being super cool. But um, which books yeah, were think- those? Sorry. Like the golden books um it was like a series a series of children's books that had yes. really lush illustration and they sort of had like a uh gold foil printed spine yep um yeah i remember those fondly and, and then when i was a teenager i got super into zines and like sort of like um diy culture um like in in terms of ordering zines and like ordering records and stuff like that so um i think uh i I think of those i guess as my formative years when i was obsessed with print then too yeah so even from an early age like you were into print and physical experiences and you started like noticing what went into creating these things yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of <laughs> for better and for worse, I like to know how things work. So I am the first person to take apart the pop-up book. Like I have to buy two copies of every pop-up book that I buy. So I have one to reference and then one to destroy so I could figure out how it works. <laughs> you know, that's so true because one of my favorite things is is sort of doing a teardown and deconstructing of food packaging and cosmetic packaging. 
just to sort of see the die line, see how it was created, see how the layout, you know, came together to create this packaging that we see on the retail shelf that catches our attention. You know, why is it doing that? Um, so on our YouTube channel, I've actually done a couple of project teardowns and, you know, ripped apart boxes in a classy as possible way um, and really talk about what goes into them and how it's created. Yeah, that's re- it's really that's really fun to be because you're you're also like really careful when you're destroying it and ripping it apart too because you <laughs> you're trying to like you know preserve uh, all of the little clues about how it was made. So yeah, that's yeah fun. exactly <laughs> exactly right. You don't want to tear too much and then the whole thing just becomes this massive like ripped up paper. <laughs> Very careful balance. Totally. <laughs> so I, wa- I wanted to ask Kelly about recently. Have you had any recent interaction um, with print or packaging that you really enjoyed? Can you tell us about that? Um. Yeah. I mean, so well, there there's two things that I've been working on these past uh, two weeks. One one is just like a real sort of quickie project um, for my friends who have a type foundry. So they. Um, you know, design and distribute like new typefaces that they come up with. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, they were coming up with a new typeface and the, you know, we're in this weird period right now with COVID where you don't know if people want physical things. We're not really meeting at conferences to mm-hmm. distribute, uh, you know, type foundry booklets and stuff like that. And so um, they're like, well, what can we, what can we do? And so I created um like this morphing letter form risograph animation. It's it's five different colors um, where it the, the whole animation like shifts through the different uh, letter forms in their typeface. And we made that as like the primary uh, thing to announce that this new uh, release was out. And we, you know, put that on Instagram and Twitter, but also came up with some posters, which I just finished like, 15 minutes before I started talking to you. Um, <laughs> Fresh so, off the yeah. press. Yeah. Cause we were like, let's, you know, let, you know, we're not doing anything physical. We're just going to be digital, but then we ended up doing something physical anyway. So now I think when people order uh, the, the typeface, they'll get a, a poster too. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I've been, my life has been completely consumed with for the last I guess almost a year now is um, I'm working on a new pop-up book, which is way more ambitious than any of the other pop-up books I've worked on. Yeah, um, you had so, my attention at pop-up book. Yeah. Pop-up books are fun. And they're also just like a production nightmare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's fun to solve those production problems. And then sometimes it's like, you know, everyone has their hands up in the air. And yeah. Like, until you have know. to hand assemble <laughs> 3000 of them. And then you're like, okay, this is, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So this one, I mean, I I have worked on pop-up books that I've assembled in my apartment. I've worked on pop-up books that I've contracted out myself um, and have gotten, you know, 3,000 of them made. Um, And then I've also worked with uh, Chronicle Books, who's a major publisher, and they made 50,000 of the, uh, this book is a planetarium. And so that was done over in Hong Kong. And um this new Papa book that I'm working on is with uh, Letterform Archive, which is a graphic design archive in, in San Francisco. They're amazing. They have so many treasures. And they they started a publishing program two years ago and um, have made 
put out a couple books and so I think this is going to be the the third the third their third release and um so it's going to be an ABC book but it's going to be all about typography and about how uh the shapes of letter forms change as technology changes um so you know when you think about serifs you're like why serifs where did serifs come from well it came from the fact that uh the Romans were chiseling letters into columns, you know, that shape of the serif like comes from the chisel, um, you know, and why are some letters like super mod looking? Um, most of the the 60s fonts that feel super mod, like Anagramma, the one that was in um, 2001 a Space Odyssey on all of the, the dashboards and stuff are all, mm-hmm. all based on this shape called uh, a super ellipse, which was is not quite a circle, isn't quite a square. But you see it everywhere in 60s industrial design from the shape of TV sets, the shape of plates. Um, and it was a shape that was invented in, in the 60s and just sort of took over. So it's, it's stuff like that. It's kind of like, where did the letters get their shape? And it's like, oh, there's a reason why letters, you know, have a certain character they do. And uh, we're explaining that you know, in the pop-ups, but it's a, it's a big project. <laughs> so it's like a pop-up book that explains the history of letter forms. It explains the history of letter forms and then also explains like different ideas about what is a letter form. Because like when, um, you know, when they were going through this transition of transitioning from um, like hot metal type and wood type, you know, that kind of printed letter into the digital space, Mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple of different philosophies and different, different routes they went to figure out how to make a letter. Um, and the first one, you know, you could think of like video game fonts. Um, they're sort of pixelated. Those were bitmap fonts. And, you know, they, they were sort of answering that question of what is a letter by producing these images. Uh, and then later you kind of had this idea of like, oh, well, maybe, maybe a letter isn't an image. Maybe there's some sort of essential skeleton to it, you know, and we can think of a letter as a series of instructions. So, you know, take an X, for example, you know, an X is, you know, start plotting in the upper left-hand corner, go to the bottom right-hand corner, and then do it in the opposite direction. And so, uh, and then add whatever, serifs or weight or armature on top of that and so um you know behind all of the computer programs we use are different philosophies of what a letter form is and so um to the extent that i can i'm trying to uh make those technologies that no one knows exist or really even understands and try to make them tangible in this book so people can play with them and get a sense for um exactly how much like the changes of technology uh yield you know the letters we see every day which is it's super fun because like those like i don't know type is one of those things that kind of disappears it's like people are thinking about the content they don't really think about the type but it really adds a lot to um our aesthetic experience of the landscape and of books and of graphic design and um you know i think our, our memories or at least my memory is literal littered with all of these typographic exper- experiences that have uh you know a real connection to places and time and um it's nice to it's nice to be able to open that up a little bit and talk about it and uh, get people into this like very nerdy very detailed world of uh, type and technology no kidding like talk about a deep rabbit hole but I love- it's a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah i loved what you said though about you know it's almost not really seen but and you only see it when it's not a good fit when it's not 
thought about when it's not done properly. Yeah, totally. There's a, there's one sort of cognitive scientist that was writing about type. I can't remember who it was, but, um, you know, he's saying that like, you can, you can see type, you can look at it as design or you can read type. It's like your mind actually isn't capable of doing those two things at the same time. And so, um, you know, I think most people kind of walk through life and walk through the city reading type. Um, and only when they befriend a designer or typographer who walks around looking at kerning and pulling their hair out that everything in the world is so terribly designed, do they start seeing the letter forms as, um, as shapes and as a graphic experience. <laughs> totally. Because it, like until I was shown and taught what you know kerning was, I never really noticed any issues with it. And it wasn't until I, I learned what it was that I went, oh my gosh. And you see where it should be corrected everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's part of sort of like the, um, I don't know, I think a lot of people who work with type end up being a little bit uh, grouchy about things. <laughs> because <laughs> you walk around and you're like, you're like, oh my gosh, everything's so broken. But um you know, besides that obsessiveness, there's also just like a, a real richness of culture that I think sort of impresses itself upon people subconsciously. But um, I think once you have, um, you know, it's not it, it, it there is sort of like this connoisseurship in the type world, but it, it is actually like very, uh, you know, sort of populist. It's like letters are all around us. We've been seeing them our whole lives. And it's just uh getting people to pay attention to them and getting people to pay attention to the feeling that different um, letter forms evoke is uh, I think a real potential for opening up a whole, uh, you know, deep rabbit hole of enjoyment to you. It doesn't just have to be about obsessively being sad about all the poor burning in the world, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. obsessively sad of all the poor. Burning. <laughs> yeah. I think it was Hoffler who came up with these uh, typographic, they look like parking tickets, but uh, it's it's a, an account of everything that might be wrong with uh, the typography on your sign or store or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can you can you can fill them out. I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I think sometimes letters can be charmingly naive, too. And I think that's, uh, you know, that it, its own aesthetic. But, yeah, mm -hmm. there are there are some just common annoying mistakes. I mean, one of them is you know, the misuse of comic sans, which, you know, everyone, everyone knows that that's the most hated typeface because people, I think a lot of times people will just use it as default and like type up their funeral parlor notices or something. And then it's just wildly inappropriate. And then everyone gets upset about it. You know? <laughs> that's right. When I print my next business cards, I'm going to exclusively use comic sans. That's it. Yeah, well, I mean, there was definitely a place for Comic Sans, but I think I think there's just like a long history of people using it in the wrong context. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, Kelly, what what do you think makes print so special to designers? Because I've I've interviewed over 200 designers now, and whether they are actively designing print or not, maybe they're even web designers, they still have this love for print and, and tangible experiences. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's, there's two reasons. I mean, the one reason is I think that we associate print with um, leisure time. You know, you think about, you know, curling up on the couch with a book or a magazine. 
Um, so I think that's that's one part of it, whereas increasingly our, our digital experiences are about um, work and mm-hmm. obligation. And so that's one thing. And then, I mean, I think the other thing is like, really, you know, we are we're physical beings. We're made out of matter. We tend to um, think about the world through our bodies and through touch more than we acknowledge. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we call this this tinkering, you know, if you're trying to figure out a problem, oftentimes there you sketch it down or uh, you try to build a model out of a little piece of paper, you know, you test things. And um, I think there's something just like really pleasing about being able to uh, think not only with your mind, but also your body at the same time and like be tuned into all of those nice little perceptual cues. And, um, you know, I think there are also there are, are fewer books um you know, being produced. And I, I think that people really are putting a lot of care into the physicality of books now. Like I'm, I'm staring right now at this, um, there's this uh, artist named Tauba Auerbach and um, I'm staring at her beautiful book right now. And it's like, well, if we're going to make a book, it's not a website, it's not whatever, you know, it, we are going to really think about like how the paper feels, the contrast and, um, how the foil looks versus like the matte background of the page, you know, mm-hmm. there really is this almost like choreography of like textures and contrast and colors that, um, just optically it's very, it's very pleasing. And, you know, it, it, it is because we're, we, we exist as physical creatures and, um, you know, the digital experiences we have are, are, you know, they're great, but they're truncated in terms of um, those sensory experiences, you know, in terms of like touch and optics and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, and I like the way you said that. And, and the way I, I hear that in this just sort of occurred to me is if you're printing something, it's almost due to the longevity of that thing that you're designing that's going to be printed it almost consumes more thought or there's almost more planning gone into it or more, um, you know what I mean? Just because of the longevity of it. It's not a website that can go up and be changed on WordPress at any point. It's not an Instagram ad that lasts 10 seconds. Yeah. And I think that, uh, it's really an occasion now, you know, it's really exciting for an artist to be like, I'm working on a monograph, um, you know, of their work. And I, I think that, uh, you know, print used to be the default for a while and um, it's not anymore. And so I think people really are treating it like it's a special occasion and uh, tend to go all out more. At least that's my perception and what I see at the uh-huh. New York, like the New York Art Book Fair. You know, like all of these things seem to be true labors of love um, these days. I mean, I think there still are kind of like crummy paperback books that are produced, but um, I think there's a there's a lot of attention to uh paper stock and uh printing technique you know there's a lot of small print studios that are doing a lot of work and um there's there's the consumer base for it too people people are buying these things they want these experiences yeah and i've been in the print industry for about 17 years now just over 17 years and you know it it, print is nowhere near dying. But what I see is that it's evolving where initially you had people producing multi-page booklets and hundreds of page catalogs, you know, showcasing all of their products and things like that. It became this product guide on whatever paper, just print the information and get it out there. There's now this deeper level of thought into it, into making bespoke pieces, higher end pieces in smaller quantities with beautiful papers and foils. It's more of a brand experience than just a, 
tool for pricing. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, really, like, I, I'm thinking of like the B&H photo catalog, which I, I don't know if you all get that in Canada. But um, here, you know, B&H photo is this amazing, enormous photography store. And uh-huh. they used to send out these catalogs that were like the phone book. You know, it was like every single product was in there, but it's not, you know, a website's better for that. A website's better because I can search for the thing I want. I don't have to look through mm-hmm. 600 pages. And so um, I, I think everything that can be digital, uh, you know, is digital now. And I think we're, we're at this moment where uh, people really are being considerate about like, all right, well, if we're going to print this, why? You know, and they try to come up with a design and a physical embodiment of, um, you know, whatever their book or zine or pamphlet that reinforces the content in, in some way, um, which I think is a lot better place, place to be actually. Mm-hmm. So is B&H photography then now doing more higher end, smaller run pieces, you know, you know, driving attention to the online store, the online portion of it? No, they, I mean, they really, I don't, they really aren't, they, they're better as a website. So huh. they, <laughs> they're, they're a website, but, um, yeah. And I, I don't really know what happens to the printers that do that large run stuff. Um, I think there are like a lot of print shops, larger print shops, um, and newspaper print shops in New York that have gone out of business in the last decade. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people, people I've worked with that are not there anymore, but, um, there really seems to be like a lot of small presses and like risograph presses and uh-huh. silk screen shops that have popped up in the place. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anyone's making any money. I don't, I can't say that there's like really an economy there, but there's definitely an enthusiasm there and a lot of people who want to learn. Um, my friends run a print shop and I really think like the main way that they make money is actually by doing workshops because people are so eager to, get away from the computer and just play with a risograph or play uh-huh. with the letter process for a day. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's different. I mean, it, it, it's printing is definitely not dead, but I, I think that it exists in a really different form than it did 17 years ago. hundred percent. It's definitely evolved. Mm-hmm. So Kelly, you're creating, you're turning books into cameras. You're doing all sorts of wild printed things. Where do you look for inspiration while planning and sketching out these print projects? Uh, I really, really like looking at uh, children's science books. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, also the Exploratorium. They're uh, like a science and art museum in San Francisco. I was actually a fellow there last year. They are an amazing resource for, um, you know, just using humble materials to do extraordinary things, which mm-hmm. it is my that's kind of what I'm always looking to do because um, I, I think that there's sort of this assumption that things have to be sophisticated and high tech to be impressive. And I, I find that oftentimes I'm most impressed by things that are barely there, but are functioning in some way because it gets me to ask questions about like the nature of the universe. You know, it's like, wow, physics is really cool. You know, like how is that, paper cone amplifying my smartphone speaker or um (laughs) you know how is it that like this this stupid little dome made out of paper like can transform my room into you know a convincing planetarium like i i really like things like that and i like them 
um, just viscerally, but I also just, I really like putting that stuff out into the world because I think kids interact with it. And, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's stuff that's within reach. Like anyone can pick up, you know, paper from the recycling bin and start trying to figure out like how it works, um, versus a lot of electronic things, you know, it's, it's not like it's totally out of reach. You can order PCBs from China or whatever, but I have a lot of friends who are in the, the tech art space and, um, you know, there's, it, it's a little bit limited. It's kind of like learning coding. It's like everyone learns the same projects at first. Whereas like, if you're dealing with like physical materials, you can just go crazy you can go in any direction <laughs> you want. <laughs> yeah, totally. I like that. So the, the experiences that you had back at the museum there, that is, you know, that plays into that sort of creative thinking to take a piece of paper beyond just a piece of paper. What can you turn this into? Yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of exhibits there that, uh, sort of reveal, uh, there's just like a lot of blind spots and, our, our perception about how the world works. And so there's a lot of like optical illusion stuff there. And then also like stuff. a lot of like, yeah, yeah. Very basic, uh, you know, science, science demonstrations and stuff. So, um, it was a, it was a good, it was a good place to be. I mean, I, I've been trying to prototype a book that works as a radio for a long time and they were able to get me further along in that pursuit <laughs> that's a hard one because uh it it's hard to you know not everywhere has like good good signals for the same radio station so it's still a problem i'm trying to solve but uh hopefully hopefully in the next year or two i'll get it okay i'll be watching instagram for that Kelly what was the first print project that you were ever a part of the first one that you ever produced can you tell us about that um you know I I'm not there's probably something I did before this but the first really big exciting print project that I worked on was actually um sort of a dream project. I, I worked with the um, activist group, the Yes Men, in creating a fake New York Times. So um, it was a New York Times from a utopian future. So all of the news was good. And it was all things that we thought could be accomplished if people got involved in activism and exerted, you know, popular pressure on government. So this was this was back in the time of the Iraq war. This was like a, a decade ago. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was it, what we did was the main headline. The paper was that the Iraq war had ended. And, you know, we had people in silkscreened um, newsboy like aprons out on every corner in Manhattan. Just one morning passing out these papers and no say, it's way. free. It's a special edition. Yeah, it was a big, it was a big undertaking because like the Yes Men, they're pretty, um, they're, they're sort of pranksters and artists and uh, they had like a, a very big mailing list. And so they were able to email everyone the night before and say like, hey, look, if you show up at five in the morning, you're going to get something cool. And people showed up and uh, as the day went on and people caught on to what we were doing, we got more and more people. So we wow. handed out like a bunch of, a bunch of fake, fake papers from the utopian future. Um, but yeah, that was a fun project. I mean, I, I played, you know, a small role in that. Like it was, it was written, the writers did 
most of uh, the work because we had writers. I mean, some of the writers wrote for the real New York Times and contributed articles, but it was mostly um, the yes men who pulled it all together. But um, it was such a it was a really fun project because it was so positive. Uh, you know, most activist projects are like you're protesting something or against something. And it was really fun to put a positive statement out into the world where we're like, hey, look, these are all the nice things we want. Why can't we have these nice things? Let's work together and make these things happen. And, um, you know, people were shocked by it because they it looked like a New York Times. It smelled like a New York Times. But the news they were reading, it seemed like unbelievable and so you got this like weird look on people's face where they're like what what is this and then you know then the next step like the more uh thoughtful step after that we hope is that people are like well you know why why do these things seem impossible that would actually be good you know i don't want the war in iraq why are we having this war you know Mm -hmm. so it was a fun fun way to like drop people down this like surreal you know, sort of thought experiment about like what you can and can't ask for in a democracy. <laughs> wow, that's such a cool thing because not only did you create this incredibly unique, tangible thing that mimics something so incredibly popular like the New York Times, but you're literally out on the street corners, like handing this thing out. Like that just creates this full, full experience that, you know, has this in person exchange. But also the piece that's a takeaway that like, just such a cool thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people talk about VR and AR and like recreating reality. But like, I think it's like really cool to make surreal experiences for people that involve physical things. Like yes. that is that is what I want. And that is my goal, because like it really, you know, you, you can't argue with something you're holding in your hand you know it's if it feels real and you can witness it and it's like a clear demonstration of something it it kind of turns your brain inside out in a way that um you know ar and vr don't because you're expecting a simulation with a digital thing so Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it could be i think it could be really pop really really powerful that's such a cool project (laughs) (laughs) okay so So going from like the high of sharing that story, I now have to ask you, Kelly, have you been a part of a print project that didn't turn out as you had hoped, didn't go well, went sideways? Can you tell us about that project? Um, yeah, I mean, I think all of them go sideways until they go the right way. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> most of 99% of every project is a failure <laughs> until it's done, until it's not. But, yeah, I'll tell you about the planetarium book because that one was a real struggle. So um, this is this is the one that you know we we have fifty thousand copies in the world, so we figured it out. But um, you know, I had prototyped uh, six different pop ups, and one of them is this pop up planetarium. And you know, everyone expects the planetarium to be a dome. That's sort of its defining characteristic. So uh-huh. I had created these prototypes of this planetarium that were a dome and um i i sent them off to the the printer in hong kong and it kept on coming back like shark fin shaped like it wasn't like you know ballooning out like a dome and uh sorry this is like kind of a boring story but like it, it was months and months of like is it the paper stock is it where we're gluing it let me make a video of how I assemble it. Uh-huh. Uh, let me write out verbal instructions. Let me whatever. And we eventually realized that like um, 
So everywhere where there was a fold in this dome, like the dome was made out of these articulated fronds that sort of um, joined together are almost like your, your hands joined together if you're making a dome with your fingers. Mm-hmm. And um, along those along those joints, I was pre-bending the joints so they'd be flexible. And I, I, I told them to do this. And um, my interpretation of this was that I creased it in one direction and turned it all the way in the other direction and creased it. So there was like this 360 degree uh, movement. And they were only creasing it in one direction. And that one miscommunication cost us like, four or five months of project. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Like we had announced the book for sale. We had pre-orders on Amazon and, um, the production of it got set back another, another year, uh, because of that. And we lost all of our pre-orders and stuff. So, Whoa, no, that's not a boring story. That's like, Holy <laughs> cow. That's like how important communication with, um, what the printer is, right? Because if you're not communicating well with your print partner, like that's something that so easily could be misunderstood and constantly delivering the incorrect result. Yeah, no, it was it was a disaster. I mean, one thing is, um, if any you know, anyone who's listening has worked with a, a major publisher on a book, there's there's sort of this expectation in the printing industry uh, or in the publishing industry that the author works with the publisher and then the publisher gets the book made but i was making a book that was just like so out there i was really the only one who was an expert on it but Uh they wouldn't let they wouldn't let me talk to the printer directly i could not talk to the printer directly so it was this weird game of telephone for a really long time and um they were they were frustrated i was frustrated they wanted to publish the book even though the planetarium wasn't working and i was like hey guys this is the name of the book. We, you yeah, know, like I'm, hard I'm, no. I'm, it's got to do this. I'm, yeah, like I'm putting my foot down. It's like we're not going to sell a book to children and say it does something and then have it not do it. Yeah. Um, so I had to really fight. I, I felt like I was just fighting for months and months. So, um, yeah, that was not fun. I think I, I needed therapy after that project. You <laughs> <laughs> should submit your bill to the publisher. I know, I know, but um, I mean, ultimately, I think it was worth it because um, you know there are a lot of them out in the world, and uh, it is a magical thing, and people people love that book, and so it was worth the fight. But um, it also was just one of those things where it seemed like the amount of fighting I had to do was just totally could have been avoided if I mm-hmm. just got on a plane if they if they would have allowed me to get on a plane and just spend a day you know in hong kong working with the printer we could have figured this out yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, there. <laughs> okay i'm gonna turn this i'm gonna turn this bus around from that one um i now want to do a deep dive into a specific print project that you were a part of i want to hear um you know as much detail as you can share with us like you know who the if the customer was somebody else, how the project came to be, what the budget was, the quoting process, you know, paper, color, um, specialty finishing, quantity, return on investment, all that kind of stuff, whatever you can share with us. Um, so what project do you want to dive into? Um, do you want to talk about the camera book? Because I, I yeah. self-published that one. Yeah. Okay, cool. So so the camera book um, – the camera book, the camera was actually a prototype I made and sent to Chronicle Books to be part of the Planetarium book. And, um, you know, a, a pinhole camera 
can't have any holes in it besides the pinhole or it doesn't work as a camera. The whole mechanism there is that you are, you know, limiting all of the cacophonous light in the world and you are allowing only one image carrying beam to Uh enter the camera. And that's why you have a photograph and that's how all cameras work. Um, So, you know, I had sent my prototype, I had found light proof paper which I discovered was light proof because I just went to paper stores and turned on the flashlight on my phone and held it up to black paper until I found one that the light wasn't going through. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had done all my research and I come up with design and they, they sent back a prototype where it like didn't have a back. And so I was like, okay, well, this is far away from uh, what it needs to be. And so we, we just kind of, we kind of abandoned that for the planetarium book. We had enough, other fights to fight um (laughs) but (laughs) but that same that same year um i got this dream job where um i was the first adobe creative resident and which is more of a fellowship they basically just uh gave me money to work on whatever i wanted for a year so i didn't have to worry about like paying for rent and health insurance that was you know awesome covered yeah. And so I was like, all right, well, I can be totally irresponsible with my money. I was like, I want this camera book to exist. And so we're like, well, you know, I think this is like in in June. Um, we're like, well, you know, Adobe Max is in November, which is like their big conference. It's like, can uh-huh. we get this book done for Adobe Max? And um, so I, uh, I got in touch with there's a, a printer called Structural Graphics in Connecticut, and they they are. I think they're the only ones in America that work on pop-up projects in America. Uh Um, And they mostly work on like pharmaceutical mailers and stuff like that. So they were excited to get like a more uh, experimental project. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's a a one page pop-up book, (laughs) but uh, it's complicated. And I sent them my prototypes and, um, you know, told them about what kind of, uh, paper which i think it was i think it was like mohawk antique loop uh their black paper is Uh totally light tight even because i needed a paper that was like really super thin but also light tight and then also didn't cost a fortune there are other ones like um like and um you know there's a lot of nice totally black papers out there but uh but yeah so uh structural graphics was able to to make three thousand of them in I don't know, I guess like two months we were able to go back and forth and, um, you know, troubleshoot it and get it to print. And it's, it's really, it's really nice. So it's, um, it's offset printed on matte paper and then the front cover has some rainbow foil on it and, um, yeah, and it has a pop-up camera on it in it that actually works. And it comes with a photo paper that, you know, you use to take the photos so um, it was a lot of different parts to come together, but um, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly what it ended up being. Like it was, it's really a lot more expensive than doing it overseas. I oh, think it was like sure three. Yeah, I think it was like three or four times more expensive than overseas. But um, I think it, I think it was like fifteen dollars per book or some, something like that. It wasn't. It was. It was worth it. Uh, you know, we were able to sell them for more than the cost of making them but um but yeah i was also a little bit worried about i'd never shelled out that much of my own money for a project and i was like are these just gonna like 
sit in my closet for all time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I, I managed like I I put it online and I they sold out and like Wired magazine like named it one of their like top tech objects of like 2015. I That's was like, so yes, cool. it's paper, but it's tech. That's right. <laughs> Damn straight that is. That's so cool. So you produced 3,000 of them. Yeah. At 15 bucks a pop. Yeah. So 45 grand you're into this thing. Yes. And oh, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say the big number. I'm going to say it out loud. So, so did you, did you have pre-sales before you pulled the trigger on it? Did you, or did you just go, okay, here's 45 grand and gosh, I hope I can sell these. No, I, I, from, from my previous projects, I just had learned that, um, you know, if I could make a really big dramatic splash and just post it once, you know, post it once, like, and, and not even like do like the incremental, like, Hey, I'm working on a book. Here's yeah. what it's looking like. Just come out of nowhere with this thing and have like the perfect statement and the perfect video and the perfect photography. Um, yeah, so I did, I did that, which, you know, that is, um, I don't know, it, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good approach because then everyone's interested in it at the same time and everyone's promoting it at the same time. And so it seems like this big overwhelming thing, but, um, I, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't been doing that lately because it seems like the internet has changed a bit and mm -hmm. it's more about like legitimate community and people following people and being like, what'd you do today? You know, it's like way more, uh, friendly and way less like, you know, I'm going to pull the curtain on my amazing, big, crazy project. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's just like my, my, what I've needed or like an actual change and how the internet feels. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been with this new pop-up book. I've been showing people pieces as I go and asking them what they think about things. But with yeah, that project, it was just like, yeah, with that project, it was just dramatic unveiling, which was exciting and risky. <laughs> yeah. So how did the proofing go with this? Did you go out there to do any press checks when this thing was producing? Um, no, we just FedExed everything. So there was just like a lot of FedEx overnight. Um, uh, they, they work with a, a printer in Texas. And so, um, you know, some things were coming from Connecticut, some things were coming from Texas, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of like proofing, like the, the printer in Texas did a great job. I, you know, the first one at Epson proof I got, I was like, yeah, it looks good. It's great. Let's print it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you did this as a passion project, as something that you wanted to see come to life. Um, there's, was there any side of like, you know what, I, I also need to pay bills and I need to make some money on this book and all the work you put into it? Not really, because I was in that privileged position of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was kind of my job to take risk like that for that year. You know, yeah. it's like I, I had that safety net. And so, um, and you know, I also had the just burning desire to actually get this thing made because, um, you know, it was, it was essentially rejected from this other project and I thought it was exciting and I thought it had legs. And so, um, so yeah. So kind of have that like, actually kind of have that like, oh yeah, kind of mentality. I'm going to get this done. 
It totally did. I mean, it was a very dramatic moment when I was fighting with my publisher and sat down and was like, hey, look, I made the camera into a book and handed it to him. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just take your picture with this thing that I brought. Yeah, exactly. Which, I don't know, they were all nice and supportive about it. But, sure. you know, I definitely had some of that, like, for me, I definitely had some of that, like, teenage rebellion energy into it. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, was there anything unique or different about, about die lines or file setup or anything that needed to be done for this piece? Or was it really just about selecting the right materials that would then go through a standard process? Yeah, it was it was really about finding the right materials. I mean, the die lines are pretty... I, I, I think the die lines on every project have been pretty much the same for me. It's like I have a, a layer in my, I, I work in Illustrator and then bring it in InDesign. So um, I usually just have like a layer for the cut lines, a layer for the full binds, and then a layer for the art. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty, pretty typical in that respect. The, you know, the only, the two difficult things were, uh, you know, finding paper that was uh, light fast you know, that wasn't going to have light coming in from the sides. Uh -huh. um, and then also just like working on the paper engineering part of it to uh, double up all of the seams. So there was like extra protection um, in, in vulnerable places. So, yeah. you, you know, didn't want to be relying wholly on uh, a strip of glue to keep light out of the camera because, you know, that's the difference between it working and it not. So, uh, -huh. so most of, most of the light traps are, are doubled up. It's over-engineered. <laughs> oh, that's cool. But, but needed to, because like you were saying, if you get a little bit of light through a seam or through a corner, you know, it, it, it kills the purpose. It, it won't work. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's a big deal. So from the idea occurring to you where you're like, I'm going to make a book into a camera to having finished product in your hand that you could sell. What's that timeline like? Well, I mean, it was, it was sort of broken up into two pieces. So like when I was working on the initial prototypes for Chronicle books for the planetarium book, um, I, I think I had a timeline of three months to propose whatever I wanted to them. And so I came up with, uh, I came up with a camera at that point. Uh, there were, you know, it needed refinements, but it did take photos. And so I, I figured out like the basics of it. And so I had that ready in my back pocket for, um, for when the Adobe thing happened and decided to actually produce it. And then I think it was, I think it, we, we got it printed in three months. So designed, printed. Um, yeah, it was, it was intense. I remember it being very difficult. I was also, you know, since I was a creative resident, I was speaking about my work a lot in public and traveling the world. And I, I have this memory of, you know, the only time I've ever gotten to go to Switzerland, just like staying in my hotel room the entire time, like trying to like fix things in the file and send them to the printer and <laughs> not being awake when they were awake. And yeah, I have memories from, I actually have memories from Vancouver like that too. There's a lot of travel and uh, not seeing anything in the places that I was traveling. <laughs> nice. Nothing but hotel rooms. Exactly. And computer screens. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so Kelly, you've 
got this really creative career where you've dabbled in print and you've created some pretty awesome tangible printed things. If there's designers out there who are wanting to get into print, wanting to get started in print, what advice would you give them to, to start down that path of print design? Um, well, you know, I, I'd say if you're interested in paper engineering stuff, um, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful to have like some kind of scoring machine. Like I, I know a lot of people have the Cricut. Um, I have a graph tech craft robo, which is a vinyl cutter that I use to prototype things. Um, I mean, even better is to have a friend with a laser cutter. Laser cutters are yeah. awesome. They're also expensive and they smell bad. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's oftentimes you can get a membership to like a community maker space and have access to things like that. And, um, it just expands what you're, you're able to do. And, um, I think it's a lot safer than using an exacto knife all day, every day too. Yeah. It's just to automate it. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're really into, to, to print, then I would recommend, yeah, like trying to, trying to figure out like if there's a, a community print space in your area like here in brooklyn we have a place called uh the arm in williamsburg that rents out time on their uh letter presses and on their rezo printers um but you know also like silkscreen is really super beautiful too and pretty easy you can order screens and um you can set up a little silkscreen shop in your apartment so um so yeah I, i would say just like you know start start playing around with it. Like, you, you know, the tools aren't, um, super expensive and it's, you don't have to go all in. And I mean, I wouldn't recommend anyone go buy a, a Rezo machine cause they're hard to maintain, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, you usually, usually you can find a way to, to access one or work with a printer, but, um, yeah, it's really, it's really fulfilling and fun. And I don't know. I, 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 I think I've had like pretty good mental health during the pandemic and I attribute it to being able to work on these like fun, fulfilling, fast, like print projects, you know? That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's a great one. Just start experimenting. Yeah. Try yeah. things out and finding, you know, the, the most cost of cost effective way to, to start that experimenting and, um, you know, just find, you know, like you said, local community spaces where you can rent time and, or just uh, try and find the lowest barrier of entry to start that experimenting. Yeah, I mean the last um, the last cover I saw from the New York Times magazine is really beautiful, and I got retweeted and spread all over the internet. And it's from a woman who um, who does all of her design by carving um, <clears throat> what is it called linoleum blocks. You know, so it's just real simple print making. You can go to the art supply store get a, a linoleum block and, um, you know, start carving letters and designs out of it and, you know, just ink it with a brayer and, uh, make some cool images that way. I mean, it's, it's, it's really like, uh, yeah, there are a lot of different ways to do it. I mean, having, having a resograph or a subscreen keeps you from having to cut out everything on the, you know, sheet, but you know, it's, it's fun to play with these different processes. Definitely. So Kelly, I want to wrap up here with the ask the audience question. This is where you have the opportunity to ask a group of designers um, that are all watching, you know, the Print Design Podcast and Print Design Academy. Um, we'll ask this question on our Instagram and they'll be able to answer and give feedback and you can check it out and you can weigh in on those answers. Um, so what is your ask the audience question? Oh, um, 
gosh, what am, what am I, hmm, I guess I would ask, I'm going to ask him, um, to think of a print design project that makes the world better. Oh, I like it. Yeah. And that can be modest. It could be like, this is beautiful. I'm making beauty in the world. Uh, or it could be, uh, you know, we are going to tackle systemic racism in this community, or we're going to give someone a voice or empower someone in some way. Mm, or somebody discovers Mohawk paper actually filters pure water or something. You know, you know, what's funny. I, <laughs> they, they're when all the, uh, protest uh, started happening around the world for Black Lives Matter. Um, there was there was some reporting about these new um, weapons that police forces were using. They're um, they're called uh, they're they're sound sound weapons. I think it's oh. like LARPID or I don't even remember what it's the it's some acronym, but um, it, they tested all of these materials to see what the most effective material would be to block these new sound weapons used by these police forces. And it was poster board, like coded poster board somehow. Yeah. Broke up the sound waves. It was specifically coded poster board, like cardboard didn't work the same way. Um, So anyway, like I just thought that was like so great and so funny because like normally like when you go to a protest, like what do you bring? You bring a sign from poster board that you got at CVS or whatever. And it like yeah. happens to be like the best production. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, then when that's going off, you just lower it down properly. Okay, good to go. Sign back up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Well, Kelly, you have reached the end of the print design podcast. Thank you so much for being my guest and nerding out in print with me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, this is really fun. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Really appreciate your time and hanging out with Kelly here. She had some amazing print stories to share. And hopefully you were excited and motivated by what she said and what's possible with paper and with print. Get out there and print something. And if you're not sure where to start and you want to get started with print design, go to printdesignacademy.com. Sign up for the three-part video series there. Totally free. And it just gets you started on that path to graphic design for print. Thanks again, and we'll see you later.